Psalm 134. So if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 134, we'll read that together. It's very short, actually. And we'll begin in verse 1. I'll be reading from the ESV. That's what I have with me today. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. It's just three verses. So I want to begin this morning by asking a question. And most of you, a lot of you may have thought of this, but have you ever thought about what it means to be blessed? This is in our passage here a couple of times, the word blessing or blessed, bless the Lord. And if you're on, if you're on social media, maybe you've seen different things like I have. You've seen people posting pictures, giving updates, and you see this, this phrase, blessed, and there are, there are all sorts of things that that can mean, right? Most of the time, what most of the times what we mean when we say that, or what other people mean when they say that, is that they've been given favor or or happiness, or maybe they have it better than someone else. And and very often this means that we see people who are who are not what we would call blessed, and we kind of count ourselves lucky, or maybe. As you, you see the things like I do, you see people posting about some of their material possessions, the experiences they, that they've had, and, and we all like this idea of being blessed. It's a, it's a, it's a positive thing. It's supposed to be a positive thing. And I want to begin, to, with, uh, to, I want to begin this morning with you talking about these things by walking through just three verses from Psalm 134. And so... Now, the Psalms themselves, in, in terms of what they are, they are the ancient songs of Israel. Everybody here probably already knows that. But it isn't an exaggeration to say that the, the Psalms of Israel are probably the most frequently read book of the Bible. Very, very common. And in this collection of Psalms, you, you sort of have the whole range of human emotions. You, you have uh, despair. You have joy. You have anxiety. You have all sorts of things, feelings of betrayal, faithfulness. The Psalms have it all, basically, and this is why the Psalms are one of the most prayed books of the Bible. I know I, I pray the Psalms as frequently as I can. If I'm struggling for words when I pray, and I don't really know what to pray, and the Bible does teach us that sometimes we don't really know what to pray, I usually try to go to the Psalms, and there's, there's a reason for that. Actually, Martin Luther, the German reformer Martin Luther, said this about the Psalms. He said, the saints find, whatever their circumstances, the words that are appropriate to the circumstances in which they find themselves. And the words of the Psalms meet the saints' needs as if they were written just for them. That's, what, and, and that's why we go to the Psalms. And the, and the idea with the Psalms is that these were, these were pilgrim songs. These were... Songs for the journey, songs that were sung by a people called out by God and who were often in challenging circumstances. 
And, and the circumstances oftentimes are, are, are difficult and challenging and horrible because of their own doing, because of their own making. And, but within the book of Psalms, we have a, a set of Psalms called the Psalms or the Songs of Ascent. And what we're looking at today is the very last one. Psalm 134 is the last of the songs or psalms of ascent. And these were basically a collection of songs that were sung when the people of Israel, would, they would gather to go up to Jerusalem, when they would ascend the hill of Mount Zion for a feast. And so one of the things that you'll notice as you're reading your Bible, whether it's in parts of the Old Testament or if it's in the New Testament when you're reading about Jesus in the Gospel, is that you often see that Jesus is or other people are going up to Jerusalem for a feast whether it's Passover or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Tabernacles or any number of of other things. And some of these feasts we're pretty familiar with because of the Passover, but others we're not as familiar with. But these are where, like with the Passover, this is where Israel is celebrating their deliverance from Egypt and the hand of Pharaoh. They're, They're actually remembering what God has done for them. And they would literally, as they were doing this, they would ascend the Temple Mount. They would be coming from the countryside and coming into Jerusalem and going up to the temple. And they were coming from faraway cities. They were coming from sort of backwater towns out in the country. They were coming from all over to worship the God of Israel. These people were sacrificing time and money and energy, bringing their whole families. One of the stories we read about in the earliest chapters of Luke and some of the Gospels is that Mary and Joseph and the young Jesus were going up to Jerusalem for a feast. They were going up to the temple to worship God. And these songs are expressions of faith sung by God's people as they are are, are believing in God and trusting in God. And and they're, for lack of a better word, enacting their faith. They're actually going somewhere. And as they sang these songs, they were remembering his work for them in the past and all the promises that God has made to them in the future. And Psalm 134, like I said, is the last of these songs of ascent. It's sort of what you would call a a farewell psalm, a a song or psalm. That's just what psalms means. It means a song. They would actually be sung or chanted. And it would have been sung by the whole community as they're getting ready to leave. So picture in your mind, you have people who've come from all over the country, from small rural towns and from big cities, and and they've all come to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And they've been there for however long the the festival is, if if it's a week, if it's the Passover, and they leave and they're getting ready to go back to their normal, everyday existence. And these would be sung these songs would be sung on the journey, but they're getting ready to sing a farewell song. It's like a goodbye. And on the journey to the temple and on their way back, remember, these people are singing and renewing their hope in the God of Israel that one day they're remembering what he's done in the past and they're remembering that one day he's going to act for them in the future. So that's the setting here. And just like the people of Israel, they were a, a journeying people. They were, I know that word gets overused uh, in contemporary Christian culture, but they were a journeying people. They were a pilgrim people, a people constantly longing for God and waiting for God 
and hoping for God to act on their behalf in the same way we too, as Christians, are a people longing for and waiting for and hoping for God uh, for, for God to, to, to fulfill all of his promises. And we're, we're actually in the same boat. We're looking back, though, to something that God has done concretely for us in Jesus. But we're still looking to what God's going to do for us in the future. The Apostle Peter, actually in 1 Peter 1, 1, actually calls Christians elect exiles. And that is a really powerful and a really concise way of describing a Christian's identity. And a really concise way of describing what should be our experience. Elect exiles. Elect who Christians are. Exiles what our experience in this world really is. And my goal here this morning is for you to see in Psalm 134, to to, to see a really basic, general framework for praising God. Because that's what this is about. Commands for God's people to come and to bless and to praise God. And then, on the other hand, a reciprocal relationship of God blessing his people. So my goal is, to, is for you to see how Psalm 134 gives you a really basic framework for praising God. But the question comes up then, how can a, a song that's a few thousand years old, how can that do this for us? Because what we're really saying when we say something like this is that we're saying it's our song. It's our psalm as Christians. How can that do that? How can it remind us of what God has done and what he's going to do in the future. And I want to show you two ways. It's really simple. Two points. Two ways. That Psalm 134 helps us to praise God and what he's done and what he will do in the future. And the first way is this. Psalm 134 helps us to praise God by reminding us of who we are. I'll say it again. It helps us to praise God by reminding us of who we are. So Psalm 134, he can be divided just... Most commentators divide into two stanzas, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3. But look at verse 1. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Look at who the psalm writer is addressing right here. He's addressing all you servants of the Lord. And I don't know about you, but in our culture, in our time and day, we are not accustomed to being called servants. That's exactly the picture that the Bible gives us when we jump into it. In his book, The Confessions, uh, Augustine, a North African bishop and theologian, he said this in his book, The Confessions. Some of you may have read it. He says, how can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? And by that, he means to understand God in all of his majesty and splendor and holiness, we first actually have to have an accurate view of ourselves. And this means seeing ourselves the way that God sees us. Actually understanding who we are. And that's just what Psalm 134 is doing. Picture in your mind, you, you've, you, you've, like I said before, you've taken a journey to Jerusalem. You've, you've sung all these psalms. You've celebrated the Passover. And you've worshipped and celebrated. You've been reminded all week that you were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. And with this closing psalm, song, Psalm 134, you're being reminded that as you go back to your home, you're a servant of the God who delivered his people. 
He's done amazing things for your people in the past, and he's promised to do amazing things for your people in the future by sending the Messiah. And you're singing that, you're singing a song that reminds you that you're his servant, and then you're commanded to praise him. Because this command, there's two commands here. And you don't have to actually, this servant language, the, the idea that we're servants, it grates against us as, as Christians, Western Christians in the 21st century. But you don't have to read very far in your Bible to see this language come out. We see that in Genesis. Abraham, he's God's servant. And so is Isaac, and so is Jacob. And all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament too. What's the most frequent thing that Paul calls himself? He's a servant. He's a, he's a slave of Christ. It's worth considering the question, do you know that, that the vast majority of humanity goes to their grave not knowing who they really are? They don't know who they are. One of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves is that we're, we're the master of our own destiny. We're the captain of our soul. And that we're somehow sort of independent of God. We tell ourselves that lie. But think about the term servant for just a moment. The idea with the word servant here is someone who's serving a higher authority, a king. There's a really clear order here. Does anyone naturally, just as a human being, like the idea that they're beneath somebody, though? Does anyone like the thought that they're dependent upon somebody else? No. You see, we think in our, we think in our minds that we are the ones in control. That We, we have in our culture a, a, a great concern for individual freedom, personal Liberty, that's, that's a part of how we form our identity. That's how we think of ourselves. We form, the questions that we ask are formed around this. Who am I? Why do I exist? Those, those are all fine questions, but most of the times we frame those questions around this idea that we're completely free. Completely autonomous. Completely independent. And there's something to this, right? I mean, who doesn't like the freedom to be able to choose different things, to be able to do different things, to be able to ask different questions? But that's not typically where it stops with us. We ask, we, we form our identity around these things. It gives us a sense of ourself and who we are. It's sort of the air we breathe. It's the air I breathe. And then we jump into the Bible and we start seeing a really different picture of who God is and who we are. Our, our, the sense of who we are, it evaporates like water on a hot day. We see a God who's good and he, he made us and he gives us breath, everything we have. He's made the heavens and the earth. Verse 3 is asking the Lord to bless us from Zion. He who what? made heaven and earth. And when we start to build our identity on anything else other than who we are in the sight of God, things start to evaporate really quickly. And there's a really simple word that the Bible uses for this. It's called idolatry. It's the one word. One word. Now, if you're a Christian, you've heard this before. This isn't anything new. This isn't anything... 
necessarily that's earth-shattering like you haven't heard before. If, you, if you're trusting in the gospel, you already know that your identity is not built on something else. It's built upon Jesus. But it's still the air that we breathe when we get up in the morning. And the best way that I have found to remember that we're God's servants and to praise him for that is to remember the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what Isaiah says hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53. You don't need to turn there, but it's just off of the suffering servant passage where Jesus is smitten and, and, and beaten for our iniquities. And it says this, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. This is Jesus. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, will make many accounted to be righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And in Paul, in Philippians, he says this about Paul. He said, everyone probably knows this verse. Have, you, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of dying on the cross. We shouldn't let these well-known verses... Is that echoing a little bit there? We shouldn't let these well-known verses sort of blow by us. Think about this. this. The Christian faith is the only faith that has a man like Jesus claiming to be God, doing miraculous things, and then at the center of our faith is a man who gets slaughtered and nailed to a cross for his enemies. He doesn't... He doesn't destroy his enemies. He actually dies for his enemies. A servant. It's the only only faith that has that as its centerpiece. He died for them. He died for you, Christian. He died for you. He died for me. And when we remember this and take this to heart, it it transforms the way that we think about ourselves, how we see God and how we see other people. It helps us to remember that we're servants. We actually don't have all the resources within ourselves to, to take care of all of our problems. The minute we say, our Father who art in heaven, we're going outside of ourselves and saying we don't have all of the resources. And he's to be praised for that. Psalm 134 says, come bless the Lord. We're his servants. But what if you're not a Christian? I'm assuming that most people are Christians here, but what if you're not? This might sound pretty awful. It sort of grates against every sensibility that you have. Who wants to be a servant? We, don't, we, don't, we just don't think in those terms. But what you need to know is that the same God who sees his people as servants is a God of infinite joy, of infinite beauty. There's no, there's no beginning and there's no end to how great God is. And in the beginning of creation, God created a world that was beautiful and joyful and full of people and things that reflected his glory. We shared in his beauty, and it was perfect. And he made people 
little, little mirrors that he set in his garden to reflect him. And the key to our deepest problem, which is sin. Right? That's the thing the Bible says over and over again. Our problem is us. It's not something outside of ourselves. Our problem is right here. And the key to that, the key to the, the evil in the world, the, the personal sins and problems that you struggle with, that I struggle with, is that instead of choosing God, we've, we've chosen other things. And we pursued other things. We preferred other things before God. And as a result of this, everything around us has been shattered. Everything is disordered and turned upside down. Everything you read about in the newspapers or blogs or Twitter or Facebook or whatever it might be, all the, the evil things that you see are a result of the fall. Famine, war, poverty, suicide, wayward children, theft, long-term diseases, bitterness. It's all a result of the same thing, sin. <clears throat> and if you aren't a Christian here today, you need to know that even though this, this actually is the world you live in, this is the case, that God has actually done something about it. 2,000 years ago, when, it, when, a, when a baby, when God came as a baby, named Jesus... And he lived a perfect life and died a perfect death on your behalf. He lived a perfect life that we should have lived and died a death that we should have died. And he died as a substitute. And that, that's, that's something we have to get. That's something we have to know. We can't, it's not like just Jesus just died for these, these possibilities. He died in the place of, of, of his people. He died in the place of sinners. He didn't just stay dead, though. He rose again to new life, proving who he was. And now what Jesus is doing, he's building a, a community. He's building a church. He's building a, 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 a grand structure full of people that are different. They're from different cultures. They're from different tribes. They're different skin colors. They're from different nations. And through trusting in Jesus' life and, and, and death and resurrection, these people from all of these different backgrounds can be made into one new man, one new kind of person and he'll give you his righteousness that's key right he invites us to become his people and one of the most amazing things about jesus we just sort of kind of we kind of gloss over this but one of the most amazing things about jesus is that he says that if you trust him if you trust him he'll actually give you his righteousness if you don't have that you don't have the gospel it's like trying to drive a car without the steering wheel Jesus says, if you trust me, I'll give you my righteousness, his very own righteousness. Paul talks about this in Romans. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No righteousness, no peace. Because we have the righteousness of God, the justification of God, we have peace with God. It's the empty hand of faith. You don't bring anything to God. That's the foundation of the gospel. And only when we embrace who we actually are as servants of God, servants of the King, can we, can we understand who God is. That's what the New Testament calls being in Christ, united to Christ, and part of his redeemed people. So the first way that Psalm 134 helps us to praise God is by reminding us of who we are. We're servants. We're servants. The second way Psalm 134 helps us to praise God 
is by reminding us of who God is. So it reminds us who we are. And the second way is it reminds us of who God is. Look at verses 2 and 3. Lift up your hands to the Holy One. The Holy Place. And bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. Here it's really clear what the servants of God are commanded to do. They're supposed to lift up their hands. And what does that mean? That's a show of submission. A sign of, I have nothing. A sign of praise. And as you read the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, you'll see that clearly the faith of God's people is, not, is, a, is a faith that is participated in. It's not just this sort of cerebral thing in your head. It's something that you participate. It involves your body. It involves your voice. It involves your hands. It involves your feet. Sometimes it involves dancing. And here in verse 2, we have the second time. This is the second time the writer of this psalm commands God's servants to bless the Lord. And any time, it's just a good rule of thumb, Anytime you're reading your Bible, if you see something repeated like this, as our brother pointed out before when we were reading through Hebrews, where the, where the structure of Hebrews, the reminders to us are repeated, it's so we'll notice it. It's like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, our ears ought to perk up. And so when we see this command to come bless the Lord, to come praise the Lord, our ears need to perk up. And what the psalm writer is directing our attention to is, uh, yet again, is the supreme value of God. We're to th- I know this sounds like obvious, but we're supposed to th- think highly of God. How many of us in our, our worst moments have not thought very highly of God? We're supposed to think highly of him. We're supposed to speak well of him. Why? Because he's holy. Lift up your hands to the Holy One and bless him. Psalm 130 is a, is a you could, it's actually just one page over. This is actually in the same unit. So, most commentators think Psalm 130 131, 132, 133, and 134 are all kind of a unit. This kind of gives us a window through which to see the holiness of God and why we're commanded to praise and worship him. In Psalm 130, the psalmist is calling out to God. He's asking God, please hear my my cries for mercy. And he says this in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And the writer of Psalm 130, he goes on and actually says in verse 7, With him, with the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with them there's what? Plentiful redemption. The redemption of the Lord is plentiful. The Lord, the Lord isn't stingy. He's not like some Ebenezer Scrooge who, who won't give a, a penny to his own mother. But he's also not like Santa Claus who, who, who's making a list and checking it twice and if you do the right things, he's going to bless you. God has plentiful redemption. He doesn't hold back his saving grace to those who, are, who recognize who they are, who are contrite in heart and spirit, who are servants of his. The essence of the human problem I think it's maybe R.C. Sproul who said this. The essence of the human problem is that God is holy and we're not. But it's, 
And this ought to cause us to tremble, but it should also cause God's people to hope in him. Because the same God who's holy, he can't actually live with sin, he can't be near sin, and we're sinful. That's the problem, right? But God, who's also he's also compassionate, he provides a way for his people to be near him. Look now at verse 3. The psalm writer concludes that includes the psalm. He says, not, not with another encouragement for us to bless God, but he points us to the God who blesses us. He says, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. And so what we see here is that we've been commanded, God's people are commanded to come to God as servants, recognizing his holiness, to bless him. We know who we are. And then and, and there's also this reciprocal relationship. That's the best word I can think of to, to describe it. That God blesses his people. God is the one here in verse 3 visiting blessing on his people. And we shouldn't actually miss who is doing the blessing. He who made heaven and earth. Everything in it. He's the God who, who spoke. He speaks and the universe just sort of springs into existence. That's the same God. I mentioned before at the very beginning today that I'd been, as I've been scrolling through social media, some of you may not use social media, uh, I, some of you may, uh, and I was thinking about this text and the Lord's blessing when it says, may the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. One of the more peculiar things that we see uh, lately is this phrase blessed showing up everywhere. From social media to, to art to postcards, it's everywhere. And I think it's, it's really important that we stop and we think about what we mean when we say the word blessed. Christians should actually feel really comfortable with this idea of being blessed. But that's not what our culture does with that word. That's not typically what's meant. You can see Christians saying they're blessed, it's great. You can see non-Christians sharing things and showing things and saying things and saying that they're blessed, but they don't mean the same thing. It's gotten, it, or it's gotten this mixed up. I mean, but like I said, as Christians, this is something we should feel pretty comfortable with, right? We, we do. We rightly ask God to bless our family. I, I ask God to bless my children every night. I ask him to bless them and keep them and to make his face shine upon them. And to give them grace, that they would believe the gospel, that they would trust the gospel. There's, I'm, I'm actually, we're actually asking for divine favor. We're asking for God's favor upon us. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that at all. God wants that. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, there's nothing wrong with, with having nice things and feeling blessed and having great experiences. There's nothing wrong with that at all. But that's not typically what our culture means uh, culture means by this normally when we see those things it's tied to some kind of success or material blessing or maybe they're luckier than somebody else that's what what does that mean though if you don't have those things does that mean you don't have god's blessing if you don't have the newest thing or if you don't have this experience if you if you don't have a perfect spouse, if you don't have perfect kids, if you don't, I mean, no one does. But if you don't have all those things, does that, does that mean you, God's blessing is absent from you? And the categorical, the without question 
answer from God is no. The difference between the things that we have that are blessings and the which which can be blessings from God, the difference is, is that the gifts that we've been given, the gifts that you've been given, will someday come to an end. God, who gives us himself in the gospel and in Jesus. Jesus said, knowing God is eternal life. Knowing God is eternal life. Full stop. End of the statement. The difference between the things that we have that are blessings that are good is that they will come to an end, but God will not. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So what happens then if you, if you don't have those things, you're not blessed, are you cursed, are you less than blessed? That's a rhyme, I didn't mean to do that, but are you less than blessed? And we find our clearest answer, just like before, like who we are as servants, we find the fullest answer in the gospel of our Lord. And who God is, and the blessing of God, and what that is, we find our fullest answer in the gospel of Jesus. In Matthew 4.23, you can flip there, you don't have to, but Jesus, he's in the middle of a crowd of people, and there's lame people, and there's sick people, and there's... Uh, there's people who are demonically oppressed, and there's people with all kinds of afflictions and diseases, and they're coming to Jesus. And in Matthew 5, I'm going to flip there. I should have already had it open. But Matthew 5, one of the most famous texts of Jesus, even non-Christians know this text, the Beatitudes. And seeing the crowds... Verse 1, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And last of all, blessed but not least, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What about these people? The people that that were coming to Jesus. That's who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to those people and his disciples. What about those people? Do they not have God's blessing? He says that those who are poor in spirit will be blessed. He says that those who mourn will be comforted. And those who are meek will inherit the earth. See, what's happening here is, is Jesus is actually taking our ideas of what it means to be blessed... And he's flipping them and turning them on their head. And what Jesus is saying here is not an instruction manual for how you get blessed. Like, if I'm just a little sadder, then maybe I'll be a little bit more blessed. Or if I'm a little bit more poor in spirit, I'm going to be blessed. He's he's taking this crowd of disease-ridden people, demonically oppressed people, and he's saying, here, these people, these oppressed people... 
these kinds of people have the blessing of God as well. Why? Because of him. Because of him and his gospel. It's people from tragic circumstances. It's not, it's, it's not, the gospel is not aimed at people who have everything together in their lives. It's aimed at people like you and me who, who realize by God's grace that we don't. This turns our notions of being blessed on its head. And in Psalm 134, we, we actually see a picture of people just like this. You might be thinking, well, why, why is he going to the Beatitudes? Well, think about who, is, who, who Psalm 134 is addressed to. It's Israel. Think of, all, think of her story. Think of her history. All the ups and downs. All the horrible kings. All the sin in Israel's history. And in Psalm 134, we see a people who are both called to bless God and are blessed, but they're blessed by God who delights in blessing those who don't deserve it, from those who are from awful circumstances. So what what Psalm 134 calls us to, it calls us to praise God by remembering who we are as his servants and by remembering who God is, the God who delights to save people with his gospel. Father, we are your servants and we depend upon you for everything. All of our earthly blessings are temporary and there isn't one of them that isn't. But the blessing of the gospel that comes from you, that lasts forever. Lord, we help, we we pray, especially in light of what was shared from Hebrews, Lord, we pray that you would help us to walk before you with, with lives that are in step with the gospel and that bring blessing to our neighbors. Help us to take care. Help us not to have unbelieving hearts that are hard. And we want to ask this, Lord, so that you can get more glory from our lives. We, we want other people, Lord, to see our lives and desire to hear more about your son, Jesus. And we want them to see our lives, and we want, to, we want them to, to wonder, why does, that, why does this person have hope? We're your servants, and, and we're looking to Jesus. God, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we ask that you would bless us, Lord, because you've, you've written, you've, you've, you've told us, and we want to pay careful attention to your word, Father. You, you've actually told us that we, your people, we've actually come to Mount Zion. We've, we've come to the city of you, the city of the living God, and to Jesus, our mediator, the Jesus who, who, who actually died in our place, and his sacrifice for our sins, Father, has given us access to you. And we pray that you would, we pray and, and know. It's not like this, we're not asking, Lord, because we don't think you will. We're asking with confidence that because you've given us your spirit, that you will be with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.